Hello and welcome to another episode of Part of the Gaps, the podcast which seeks to plug the gaps between the church and the culture. Uh, my name is Aaron Edwards. I'm joined, as ever, by Andy Bannister, but also joined by a very special guest today, who is uh, one of our, our, a new friend of ours, I think, on the podcast. Yes, are we, um, we going to announce this guest now? Are we going to banter for a couple of minutes and then keep the listeners Well, I don't, intrigued? I mean, if you tell the listeners that you're going to banter, it kind of ruins the, banter, it, it ruins the banterous element. So well, let's bring in, because he's a good, a good Scotsman, we'll bring him in to join the banter. Let's maybe. do that. Maybe he has so, yeah. so this is John Deegan. Uh, hello, John. Good to have you with us. Hello, Aaron. Uh, Andy, thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here and to be part of your podcast and uh, yeah. looking forward to a chat this afternoon. Yeah. It was great to see you uh, recently, Aaron, at one of our events. So, uh, yeah, yeah, deli- yeah. Delighted that's right. To- I, should, I, I should say, yeah, that was, John is the CEO of um, the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children, an organization we've mentioned a few times on the podcast, especially on an episode we did um about abortion um about 18 months ago now maybe yes as long uh, 18 months is a long time in in podcasting and john i'm very glad to have you with us very brave by the way because you are i think only the only the second guest and the first roman catholic and the first roman roman catholic oh well uh, i actually did mention to my kids um that we were doing the podcast and i and i mentioned you know the, the organization that you're fr- from and described it and i mentioned roman catholic and my my son who's who's eight misheard me he's like so is that like a christian who wanders around the place um he missed <laughs> i was like no 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 not roaming catholic roman <laughs> roman, roman catholic, catholic. So, yeah, yeah that's right no but, but we, it's interesting we've all had we've all lived in uh scotland well obviously john lives in scotland and is scottish but we've all but you spent time yeah, in dundee i, I spent time in aberdeen and, and john you are you at glasgow is that right yeah, I'm, I'm over in the West Coast, so I'm, I live in Paisley, uh, uh-huh. the, the Spuck office is in Glasgow, of course I work, work between the offices in London yeah. uh, and Glasgow, yeah, but a lot wetter in the, the West Coast, guys, so you, you chose well to, to yeah. go. <laughs> the the East, Coast. East Coast is a lot drier, that is true, we get a yeah. bit of sunlight and, and yeah. Yes, yeah, so although in, in Aberdeen where you were, you got the... Um... What's that? That's that. You got that sea fog thing that comes. The ha. The ha. That was it. The ha was the. I think I said this before. The ha was your punishment for a sunny morning. If you had a sunny morning in Aberdeen, the ha would punish you in the afternoon for some reason because it would be too clear. The sky was yeah. so clear that the ha would come in and invade. That was how, how it's very, it worked. It's very Calvinistic, right? It was, so yeah, go, it's good. Right. It's good this morning, but you're going to you're going to punish you for punishes you for having too much of a good time. Exactly, exactly right. And, and, and in fact, yeah, speaking of a good time, we had there was a love at, at the Spark. I, li- I loved the fact that on the on the conference schedule for the Society for Protection yeah. of Unborn Children, there was a Cayley, which apparently is an institution that you inherited, didn't you, John? You didn't have anything to do with it as CEO. No, it's, 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 been old... Old, it's, yeah, it's age old since the beginning. It's lost in the mist of time for me. But yeah, it's always <laughs> been a big thing. <laughs> Yeah. The social side the social side of the pro life movement is is important. And that, that's always a highlight, the Kaylee. Yeah. In fact, we've had couples meet at that Kaylee and get married. So yeah, it's, it's a it's a popular feature that's amazing. of, of yeah. our events. And uh, yeah, so yeah, always we couldn't have a conference, I don't think. Certainly the weekend oh, conferences exactly. with, with Well it's one. also um it also occurs to me it's also thoroughly thoroughly biblical because Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. <laughs> oh, there has to be a dad joke on every I forgot, episode. I forgot to mention, John. Yeah, Andy is a serial punner, so you know, at some point, you, okay. you, will, you will get some puns that will come will be in, some puns, and then. you just need to you just need to laugh at the appropriate point. Well, or, think, or not, as the case. Yeah, 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 the case well, I, well I'll, I'll write them down and try and use them, Andy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so perhaps more seriously, John, for folks who perhaps are not totally familiar with with SP 
you see is do you prefer SPC you, you, or you see or do you prefer Spark how would you normally well the thing about Spark is it's an ugly word but it's a sticky mm. word so it tends to stick yeah. know, so people remember yeah. Spark but I, I typically to, to, to be polite use SPUC is yeah. uh, usually yeah. if I'm trying to be polite more, speaking, it, it's in, a, polite, speaking exactly. in a church or somewhere usually I would say SPUC yes. but in the office we, we would talk Spark and people who are members will say oh yeah I'm a member of Spark so Right. So for yeah, folks right. who perhaps have maybe have heard the term, or maybe they haven't, I mean, so in in a nutshell, what is what is Spark? What is SPUC? What are, what are you all about? What's the, what's the, what drives well, the organisation? Well, I, I suppose our commitment to defending the right to life for for in particular for the unborn. We came into existence at the start of 1967, which actually came after a letter in the Church of England Times. Uh, from from Anglicans who were worried about the abortion bill that was being proposed at the time, and then there was a meeting early in 1967 in a in a pub called the Wigan Pen in London, and uh, a few people. So it it wasn't a sort of Catholic organisation to start yeah. with. It's not Catholic now. We're non-denominational, but it, it is true that a large number of our support, you know, very high percentage are Catholics. I was very much in a minority, yes, when I was there. Yeah. Mm. So um, you're on your way to Rome. We really, really know this. <laughs> yeah. So 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 typically we're a, an organisation that promotes the right to life. Um, we do that in a, in a variety of ways. You know, politically we we lobby Parliament. We actually prefer to get our support base to lobby Parliament. So it, it's really based on a, a grassroots approach. We have just now about 56 branches across the UK and we have an extensive mailing list and we try to encourage people to take it, uh, to take on their responsibility as good citizens to stand up for the right to life. So we will make sure that we give briefings to supporters. We try to do that, obviously, in the wider community. Um, just now, you'll know in the mainstream media, we are up against it. So to try to get it out there is difficult. So it means that we have to go to particular audiences that are likely to be receptive, and that will be people of faith uh, mm. very often. So that that's that's a facet of just, just the mm. social circumstances of, of our era just now. Yeah. I mean, it's people of faith um, that tend to have a broader view on values um, you know, in, in every age, the majority just go with the flow. And, and in our age, there's been a massive effort to promote abortion. Um, you know, most of our citizens have just become familiar with it. It doesn't seem to mm. them to be an issue. But those who have a longer perspective, who have a different frame of reference, who, who, can, who can transcend the, the culture of today or the narrow culture of today, can see the importance of of the fundamental right to life, mm. and and they can take a, a more historical perspective and and recognise that if we're living in a time where a subset of the population have been deemed to be non-human or not worthy of human rights, they can see the parallels through history, and and mm. so it's typically people of faith who will be up for the challenge of trying to correct. Um, the deviation in, in our own age and, and try to, to yeah. put things right, try to achieve justice. So that that's yeah, that's typically what, what we're trying to do. 
One quick question I wanted to ask, and I'm sure you know Aaron's got some as as well. As, as we tease some of these issues apart, John, I'm intrigued that you mentioned that although Spark is you know uh, across the denominations, you know uh, the bigger majority of your members would be, would be from from the Catholic Church. Have you got any sort of observations on kind of on kind of why that is? Why is it that that Catholic Christians have, have, have traditionally, I think, some, sometimes done a better job of keeping this issue on the on the on the front on, on the on the front burner. I mean, I'm an Anglican, um, although I'm a bit of a denominational gypsy, and I confess it's not an issue I see my church talk about. Though I'm an, in a large evangelical Anglican church, it's engaged in a whole range of issues, not all the necessarily socially popular ones. Um, so it's not it's not that it's afraid of that issue, but it seems to have somehow fallen through the the cracks for, yeah. for for many Protestants. Have you got any sort of thoughts or observations yeah. on why that might be? Just before John yeah. answers that, just to share a story when I was at Spark, yeah. was I, I had a few conversations with Catholics. I was, I was speaking with Catholics virtually the entire time because they were everywhere at Spark. It was, it was, it was <laughs> we had some good banter, some good theological debates. Um, I can't and, imagine you debating <laughs> theology, Aaron. I really. And I think, and, but it's also, I guess there's a range of, of Catholics anyway, aren't there? So the kind of Catholics that are going to be at Spark are going to really, really mean it in, in, in every respect. And so, it's, they're not nominal in any sense, and the guys I was chatting to who were wearing who were from a friary up up in up in Scotland actually I think mm-hmm. they were, I think or at least it was the northeast it was somewhere oh yes yes yeah yeah there was were a group of friars yeah yeah that's right so I was chatting to them and the and the and the guys were um friar spark friar spark and they were saying <laughs> sorry were saying, look I told you John see um we'll insert a laughter track um but. Yeah, and they were when I said I was an evangelical and I really cared about pro life. I said, "Do they say, oh, do, do evangelicals do they care? Do they pro life generally?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, like we are. Like we we say we are. We don't. We no no one's pro abortion. Everyone's technically pro life." But they were like pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. that some evangelicals would care about this issue. I was just kind of that probably tells you a lot, yeah, doesn't it? But it sorry, does. sorry, John, you jump in. Uh, well, it's, I'm sure there's a hundred reasons, you know, but certainly one for us is. The, the, the doctrinal framework of the Catholic Church is much clearer for Catholics to say, well, you know, we have things in place like, you know, we have a, a Pope who typically has a, a high profile. We we have a strong hierarchical structure. So a strong message coming from the centre is amplified by cardinals, by bishops, by catechetical courses in schools mm. and parishes. So, so you've probably got that. In in decades, you've had very strong emphasis on the pro-life issue. But in particular, he uh, he promulgated an encyclical called Evangelium Vitae, which is the gospel of life. So that was a seminal piece of work, and that 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 really raised the the pro-life issue, or or continued to keep it high. I think in the in the sixties, when abortion was being proposed. Most of society were against it, would have been shocked by it, and they were open to the exceptions. The, the The Catholic Church had a strong, strongly developed sort of social teaching around exceptions. Mm. The other churches did take on board the, the, the empathy dimension of the Christian message and they were very worried. It's something we encountered just well with with Catholics, with Catholic priests and uh, all clerics. And uh, they are right the right to, to worry about the, the sympathy we, and the empathy we had for, for women who have abortions. Um, but it's it's important that we don't allow that to disable us from talking about the message. And I think that's maybe the difference of what's happened where people think, you know, being 
Christian and being loving means that we don't address this because it's too painful. And, uh, you know, what, what I always say to, to, to church leaders who might find themselves in that position is, listen, abortion causes a lot of suffering, suffering out there because of abortion. And if we do not address it in the churches, the people who are suffering will not find a pathway to healing. And what Christianity can do in, in, in other faiths as well is offer a pathway to healing. So we cannot abandon women and their families who, who may be in church or maybe friends of those who are in church, cannot abandon them to the suffering of abortion. And we need to do something to help them. But at the same time, we need to let others know that abor abortion is something that it calls, causes harm at so many levels and, and, and we need to re respond to it. We cannot remain silent on it. So it, it, it's mostly for, for good reasons. People do not want to deal with um, issues that might hurt others. But in recent terms, it's, it's been strengthened, I suppose, that, or the, the, the reasons why you might not do it have, have been strength, strengthened because the stakes have been raised, I think, because the, the abortion industry has learned from other campaigning groups about the importance of demonising those who oppose you and the, the importance um, or the effectiveness mm. of uh, marginalising um, yeah. I mean, the, the cancel culture is obviously obviously part of that but you know so so we are finding ourselves being cancelled more routinely but we are also finding ourselves you know the the subjects of attack about you know you you people are wicked you you are preaching mm -hmm. hate and all the, all these techniques that have been developed over the last few decades are now being used in, in the pro life movement and and I think in particular after the Roe v Wade in in the states I think that was a shock for for Europeans in particular but it made them think oh hold a minute they just thought the whole tide was with them and suddenly there was a decision that went the wrong way, because that's inconceivable. Just now in, in Parliament, it's inconceivable that a pro-life measure could could have any level of success. So I think it shocked them. Mm. Um, yeah. And as a result of that, it was, we need to destroy this movement. We re need to really stamp yeah. down on it. So I think that's what we're finding in, in the UK and mm. in the wider world, in fact. Yeah, I was going to ask you a question about the, the UK-US difference. Obviously, the Roe v. Wade turnover is significant and there is a difference isn't there in pro-life movements historically in the us to the uk and i know spuck is from what i heard at the conference is the first the world's first pro-life organization uh, of really isn't it so that's an interesting thing anyway that has that kind of provenance but when yeah. we think about this phrase that we've titled the episode of which is actually just your or spuck's current kind of tagline of making abortion unthinkable there are different approaches to how one should approach that and and obviously levels of strategy in terms of lobbying and the kind of repealing of laws and and maybe not going for the jugular straight away as you say you've, you've, you've that kickbacks come since roe v wade but there's but people in the u.s i'm just seeing a lot of people who are saying that even the pro-life movement is kind of destroying itself uh some would say oh no not betraying itself i would probably say um because they're not voting on things they should be voting in order to try to make abortion unthinkable to try and literally illegalize it and therefore maybe even bring significant penalties against those who are procurers of abortions uh, abortionists themselves uh, including mothers or would-be mothers um which is an interesting difference to the sense yeah. of the empathy piece isn't it so 
Um, yeah, any any kind of thoughts on that in terms of how you think un- the unthinkability can can happen? What are the steps that we need to take? Yeah, there's yeah, there's quite a few differences. I suppose culturally, there's a big difference. Um, in in terms of the place religion has in society, you know, it's a much more religious society in the states. It's bigger, you know, it's got more resources. Uh, you you have you know a sizable number of pro life politicians. You have states that are pro life. Uh, the framework was different. The framework in the States was imposed by a, a, a court decision uh, at the Supreme Court, of course, which bound the States really or imposed abortion in every state. So it, the, the the repeal of that has meant a, a, a battle at every state at state level. Mm. Uh, I think they've been very organised in the States. Typically in the States, the same, they're the same in business. You know, they're, 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 they, they think about targets and measuring and, you know, make sure they put the resources and things that work and, pull them out if it doesn't work. So so I think they're just ahead of the curve. Mm. I remember when, when before when I worked for the, the Catholic bishops, uh, I remember an, an American film crew coming over and they came to, to interview me and they chatted about um, the pro-life movement and they were shocked about the lack of its visibility in the UK. They just couldn't believe it. Mm. And they, <clears throat> their view was that in the States, it was everywhere. It was the dominant thing in the churches, you know, just as now, I suppose, like third world issues just now or the environmental issues are everywhere inside our churches. Well, that's what it was like for the pro-life movement in the the American churches. Mm. And it's not, it's definitely not that here. So you've you've got that difference. Um, In Parliament just now, our Parliament has, has long been... Uh, controlled, I suppose, by a particular ideological vent when it comes to, to abortion. So we just do not have a sizable number of politicians who are fighting the pro-life cause. So so there is a fight going on, I would say, in the mm. States. You know, you know, there is a certain equality of arms, so to speak, mm. that just mm. is lacking in the UK. That's really yeah. That said, I was going to pick up on the, um, you know, the making abortion unthinkable tagline fascinated me when I when I came across it John because I lived for six years in Canada and obviously in, in many you know oh. Canada has a lot of similarities to the to the US but also huge similarities to the UK and I think on the, the abortion piece there is somewhere in the middle it's more visible there than than here but not nearly as much as the as the US and I got a good friend of mine um, who was uh, did, had done a lot of work on sort of pro-life things in Canada a guy called John Patrick and I, John was one of the first ones I used, retired medical doctor, one of the first person, people I used, I came across who used that line. When I said to John, you know, why is it you use the language making abortion un- unthinkable? He said, what I found when I go onto university campuses and I speak to secular audiences or I, or I go and teach medical students, you know, the nice thing about that line is it does take one of the big sort of, you know, objections that's hurled at you off the table. Because if people start saying, well, you want to ban abortion, you want to criminalize women, all these things. John said, if I'd literally say, no, I'm not interested. I'm not even remotely interested in any of those things. I just want a world where nobody would even consider abortion. He said, what I found in a country as liberal as Canada, that actually get, begins to get you the hearing. And then he would say, the second step I would do with, with particularly with student audiences is my goal was to get them to begin to then see abortion as at least a moral issue to discuss, even though we might disagree on it. Um, rather than seeing it as an absolutely unquestionable, um, you know, how could somebody think the other thing? He said, success to me is like, I've got folks going away going, there are some issues here I need to think about. Uh, he said, obviously, I would love people to totally, totally agree with me. Um, and so I think those are two steps here that I see. 
I see my viewing of UK mm. culture not dissimilar. That I think you know defanging that idea that those of us who are pro-life simply want to you know throw people into jail and toss away the key, but also that somehow shifting the needle so that even those who do end up concluding that that abortion is uh, is something that they want to see would at least go. But I realise that's with a heavy heart. I realise there are big moral issues here. I realise it's not. This is not without consequence. Um, but there are some big questions in my mind, as you say, as to how we how we shift culture here because it does seem so. It does seem so monolithic. But also, I suppose I'm encouraged. I look back historically, whereas in history there have been similar moral issues. Where at the time those campaigning to change those issues, I guess, would have looked at it and gone, there is no conceivable way. And the fact that 1967 is interesting because, of course, that puts us into, you know, sort of uh, what's that? That's 55 years ago, 56 years ago, roughly, isn't it? And then my mind is like, well, think of slavery. And that was a 45-year campaign of force yeah. thought. So although in the one sense there's so much to be done, I suppose part of me looks at it and thinks this is going to be a long battle, isn't it, to, to actually change a culture's overarching ethical mm. framework on this and get people to begin to see there's an issue mm. here. But I'm also encouraged mm. historically, it's we winnable. have seen that shift. It's, it's winnable, it's doable. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah, I, I think it's important for, I think that point you're saying there, Aaron, that it's winnable. I think it's important for the pro-life movement to realise this is winnable. Mm. I think when I, when I took yeah. on this post in particular, that's what you, asked, you asked me earlier about um, what, my thinking and what are priorities and stuff like that. Where When I took up the post as CEO of SPUC, I've been thinking this way since I was the CEO of Scotland, actually, was to try and benchmark where are we? And, and try to think, like, okay, if this is where we are and we know where we want to be, you know, how do we make it a winnable mm. game? And what are the steps for making this a winnable game? Yeah. And well, there's, there's lots of things that have influenced me. There's, you know, I, I read new people popping up every other day. I think oh, that, that's a good understanding of, of, of where we are in this time in history or where we are in a particular issue. And, you know, so lots of those things have mm. impacted me, but some of them share certain features which I, I think are important and that is that um, culture flows or ideas flow in particular directions mm. and typically they flow incrementally and we're never sure how fast those increments can change. So one, one of the things I use with my staff and talk about and, and why we actually started using unthinkable in our vision was what's known as the, the Overton window, the yeah. steps to which you know, so if you're familiar with that, you know the steps for particular ideas, you know, that things can be unthinkable and then radical and then acceptable and then sensible and then popular and then policy. So things can move. Hmm. And, 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 and some other campaign groups will use what they call the salami approach and just get people to just accept that a little at a time. And it seems to me that that's always been used by those who are, who are doing things that are detrimental to the well-being yeah. of our society. So we've seen that the growth of uh, pornography is just one one example, um, uh, drug use and um, hard drug use or the provision of drugs by the, all, all sorts of areas, mm. prostitution. Well, well, the LGBT is, agenda would be one. Uh, they, well, they, they, they in particular have been the most successful, I would say, very, very effective. And, and a, lot of, a lot of my work with the bishops actually was working to try and stem the tide as as the homosexual yeah. movement came in and swept over society and and literally inverted the whole of society's views on that issue. And how they did it, they, they were quite open about it. The, the, the problem I always had when I was working on that issue 
was when I explained to you know people in church or, or, or even religious leaders what was going to happen, what was coming, as they just didn't believe me because they thought it was too ambitious, too radical, too hmm. unthinkable. Hmm. And yet they did it very, 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 very quickly, quicker even than they anticipated. Yeah. <clears throat> and, I, and, and another one that is all also very helpful to look at is the, the environmental movement. Mm. Uh, they, they've, um, I'm probably going to forget the, the guy who's written an excellent book on, he was one of the architects on the, the Green Movement. I think it was David Rose uh, wrote a book on how they did it. How did we go about creating? And he, he makes a lot of interesting points, especially in terms of the, the difference between education and campaigning is an important one because a lot of times the pro-life movement and, and people on our side in particular, we think if we educate people, that's us mm. campaigning. And, and there's obviously an element of that. But what Rose shows in, in his book and explaining how he did it was that no, campaigning is actually the opposite of education. Education, you broaden people's minds, whereas with campaigning, you focus them and you yeah. get them onto yeah. one particular thing. And you, you actually have to increase the emotion. So you have to narrow your focus, increase the emotion and effectively make people angry that they want to see change. So I think you've seen that in the whole environmental movement. It's all angry. Mm. It's all shrill. It's all scaremongering. Yeah. And we've all yeah. been terrified. And, and they've used those techniques. And there's not a lot of room for reflection, mm. thoughtfulness, weighing up the different solutions. Posing perspectives. and Yeah, so there's, no, there's not even that's not even allowed. It's not even mm. allowed to actually yeah. propose that there might be another solution, even if this, there is the same problem yeah. we recognise. That's not even allowed. So th there are things to learn from what they've done. And obviously, as you know, broadly Christians and, and we believe ethical, we wouldn't use unethical means, but certainly to learn particular lessons that w we need to know how how they message, for example. You know, another really interesting piece of work I found was, I think it was um, a guy called Brian Brown wrote a, a paper, or I think he called it uh, You've Been Framed, and it, it was about how the LGBT movement framed the whole debate. Uh, and he, he identified five key techniques that were used and how did they do it? And, you know, the, the, the foundation of it is they, they use emotion. Mm. And, and that really struck a chord with me because <clears throat> one of my favourite uh, guys I, I, I like to, to, to reflect on, the, ins the insights he had was Alistair McIntyre, mm. who was a Scots philosopher. So, if you, you know, when you read After Virtue, I mean, when I read After Virtue, I thought, oh, my word, that's the, that's the, that's the most appealing presentation of why we're in the mess we're in. Yeah. And he identified that we're in the, we are in the stage of emotivism. Mm -hmm. Our society yes. now, we've gone beyond reason. Reason isn't working anymore. It's emotivism. So with that insight of, of McIntyre, and he famously ended that, that book say, you know, with words to the effect, I'll paraphrase it, you know, the barbarians are not at the gates. They're actually inside. They've been leading us, and they have been for a long time. The you know, so we have, we have, and, and this is why it shouldn't be a surprise now that we have the the wokeism, the cancel culture. These are people who've moved beyond reason, and they're they're actually now they have prepared the arguments to actually challenge us if we try to use reason. You'll hear them saying, you know, the, you know, you know, quite shameless things like. You know, logic is racist because it was created by white men. You know, they'll, they've got phrases that I'm afraid 
when they've indoctrinated yes. enough young kids at university, they will just come running out and yeah. repeat that <laughs> sort of stuff without reflecting on it. I love the irony of that because, you could, of course, you can collapse that statement to a logical syllogism, can't you? White men are racist. Logic was invented by white men, therefore yeah. logic is racist. But unfortunately, yes. you actually yeah. just use logic I, to prove your I, case. I was reviewing a, dis- a master's dissertation recently, which, really? which was on, which was comparing two missiological thinkers, right? Yes. And then it, it, so this person has chosen to do a dissertation on two, comparing the missiological like approach of these two people who both happen to be white men. So they did the self-flagellating like page long apology in the introduction. Like, I'm so sorry that I've chosen two white men who are obviously, um, you know, they obviously stand, uh, they, they show, they show the kind of indicative perspective of white men. And I was like, what, what is that? What is the, what, how do white men think again? Like, how do all white men think? And why are you apologizing for it? You've chosen to do this. Just go with it and yeah. say, I'm choosing to use these people. But as you say, it, it infects so many it does. areas, doesn't it? And I think it's, it's so interesting what you're saying, John, about you're almost, you're learning from your enemies as well as learning from uh, co-belligerents and allies as well, because yeah. you, you're looking at the impact uh, of that. But at the same time, presumably you're not trying to say, the pro-life movement therefore just has to jump on the pure emotivism bandwagon, but it probably has to recognize yeah. emotion is a <laughs> key part of it and, and actually ought to be because it struck mm. me that what you were saying about campaigning, there are a lot of a lot of crossovers there with preaching. You wouldn't want to say preaching is not about reason, but you also wouldn't want to say it's just purely reason. It's not just saying, here, let me just commentate to you for some stuff for you to learn. It's not just a merely teaching moment. There's something that should be mm. speaking to the heart. And I think that's the, if we're going yeah. to speak about emotives, we're saying it should be, I know I could ta- I could tell you a hundred things, but I'm going to tell you this thing. And you need to know that this is the thing that we need to talk about. And just thinking about your presentation you gave us, Buck, I was so shocked to see that graph you pulled up of the amount of money in this country that is given to so many other causes accumulated in one massive bar i think it was something was it 12 billion or was it yeah i think it was 11 billion, like 11 on, billion. Good, on good causes then, if you call yeah good, good causes. causes yeah and that's corporations and individuals and then there's the pro-life how much money goes to pro-life and i think you said i doubled the pro-life figure and it's just still so it on the it's still just a stain on the on the floor yeah, i think yeah. you said yeah yeah you just think in terms of focusing this is such an important moral issue and, it's, and, an, yeah, it's enormous. Well, that, that graph, that. I'm always amazed. Like, because If you've been in the pro-life movement for years, you know, you're just so aware that, well, nobody cares about us, nobody gives money to the pro-life movement. You know, but that, that graph, anytime I show it, has a massive impact. And especially the other graph I typically would show is I would compare the number of deaths from other, you know, ma- major threats to life. You know, that, you know so seven, the, the World Health Organization puts it 73 million lives a year so that the scale of the loss of yeah. life is absolutely enormous yeah so yeah, yeah so we need we need to well we need to learn th- I, I suppose what we can learn from other successful um campaigners whatever the issue happen to be is the fact that they're, they're dealing with human beings and there is something about human nature that, that that we we can learn how to communicate effectively with human beings who share our nature and similarly, the other thing is we can also look at trends in society. You know, you're talking about you, you mentioned slavery earlier. We can we can look at how <clears throat> how does society move, and and what are the mm. tipping points? How do we create tipping points? What are the features in a particular society? I mean, I, I like like many Christians in particular, we look at the example of Wilberforce. We study. What actually went on over those four mm. decades, these tipping points? And the one that struck me was 
the thing I, I mean when I speak to my staff about this and we, we chat about this is this a winning game or how do we make it a winning game where are we on the trajectory towards unthinkable and and I will often see the three features that jump out to me with Wilberforce where you had a very well organized campaign inside parliament mm. you had a very well organized campaign of public yeah. information outside of parliament but you also had a religious revival and the importance of the churches and giving cultural or giving leadership to our culture is vitally important. So, uh, so a big part of that is for us to think, okay, well, let's look at those levers and what levers can we pull to try and create the tipping point. John, are you referring there to the Great Awakening, Methodism, and is that kind of what you're... Yes, all, all of yeah. that time, yes. Yeah. So you, yeah. you had, the, you know, the, even even the impact of the, the, the Quakers and the, yeah. the, the yeah. various denominations in Christianity who, who were public witnesses and yeah. took their faith seriously and, and that, that then impacted the, the sort of citizens that yeah. were there. Absolutely. No, I just wanted to get the Catholic to admit the Protestants had done something oh. good there. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I see. I, you heard it first here on Part of the Games. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Uh, sorry for the interruption. This is the bit where you might be tempted to go, oh, I'm, I'm going to turn off now. They're going to do some advert. They're going to ask me for some money, I'm sure. Well, we might do that, but we were thinking, weren't we, uh, Aaron, of just uh, we want people to get involved with helping Pot of the Gaps grow and go and keep going. So um, we've discovered from some of our episode titles that people love lists, right? We do. In fact, I know five reasons people love lists. <laughs> do you <laughs> really? Could you list, the, list those reasons? Yeah. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, but I reckon there are probably three ways. Do you reckon there are three ways we could ask people I'm to sure really help us with ways. part of the gaps? So if there were three ways, what would be your number one, your top one? Number one, I'm sure supporting us on Patreon would has got to be the number one podcast thing to say, isn't it? Really? That would be a good one, and it does make a difference. Thank you to those who do. But if you don't support us on Patreon for just five pound, five dollars a month, or less, if if uh, you need to go lower, that would really help us with our production costs and other things associated with the show. So yes, Patreon. Number two, I reckon, I was thinking about this. Number two would be to leave us a review. Yeah. Um, the algorithm things that suggest new podcasts to people. If a podcast is regularly getting like new reviews and likes and stuff, mm. uh, you know, the sort of uh, the uh, the artificial intelligence little robot things the that run the internet. The bots, the bots, the bots. We must impress, impress the bots. So leave us a review. Best way to do that, even if you didn't get your podcast there, is go to the Apple Podcast Apple website because that's one of the big ones, the biggest one out there. So even if you don't listen to us there, leave us a review there. Um, leave us a, you know, rate the show. Give us uh, you know, five stars, four stars, three stars, two. Oh, we don't care how many stars you give us, actually. Just leave a review. It would be great. So is there one more? There is. And actually, I think it's the most important one. Come on, I said what is it? Money is not the most important one. Money would be great, but... Um, sharing is the most yes. important one. So if people, if you could share it with people that you think would find it helpful, and even even some who aren't who aren't believers. So if you're a Christian and you, and you want to actually share this, but we're dealing with stuff that actually, though we're talking to Christians primarily, there are many people you might be talking mm. to about the Christian faith who might benefit from hearing Christians talk about this, these kind of issues. And we, we're finding that quite helpful when we're in our own evangelistic conversations. So please do share these episodes with Christians or non-Christians to uh, grow the reach of the show, really not for its own sake, but for the sake of the issues that we're talking about and how important it is to plug these gaps between yeah. the church and the culture. And a kind of bonus fourth one, actually. Bonus. So the, f- the first one is, uh, is to support us on Patreon. Second one is to leave a like or review. Third thing, share it with friends. Bonus fourth one, if there is a burning issue out there in culture oh, yeah. that we haven't covered, because we don't know everything, we really don't, um, then let us know. You can send mm-hmm. us a message on any of the social media channels uh, that were on your phone, part of the gaps on Facebook and Twitter and, uh, and so on and so forth. Let us know. Say, hey, there's this issue out there. Could you guys think about it? We would love to do that. Anyway. <laughs> Better get back to the episode where it's me and you talking in another f- format now, I guess. Okay. So meanwhile.
back to the episode. The other thing that, that occurred to me there was a, that, that joins the threads there in some ways between between the between the, the Wilberforce um, kind of era that we talked about, but also you know learning from others. Do you know the other thing I think that I found is interesting when you look at those other campaigns, especially how some of the you know our friends in the LGBT community have advanced their cause, but then Wilberforce as well. One common link there was the use of story, because one of the things that shifted the Wilberforce campaign was when you began to get those first-hand accounts of slavery coming out. So as you know, you know everyone talks about Wilberforce. One of my heroes is John Newton, who I don't think gets nearly enough of a mention. But you know yeah. Newton's first-hand account of what yeah. it was life was like in the slave mm. trade, as well as you know the accounts of of slave, you know first-hand autobiographical accounts of slaves coming out, you know really shifted the needle. As the LGBT community, as I mentioned, has been very strong on being story-led. You know, rather than just campaign for gay marriage as an idea, yeah. you know, here's a lovely couple. You know, look how yeah. wonderful yeah. they yeah. are. Yeah. You'd love them as your neighbours. Wouldn't you want them to have? Um, and equally, then in the abortion industry, you know, it's never one of the things. I, one of the, tra- the traps I do wonder, and I don't know how we avoid this. On the one hand, talking about the number of deaths is hugely significant. On the other hand, the problem is that sort of gets the trump card. Is well, here's a story of somebody who's had a terrible experience. She's been in an abusive relationship. She's been made pregnant, unwanted pregnancy, whatever, whatever. You know, wouldn't it be tragic, you know, if you took away her ability to make choices for her future? And then we try and sometimes fight that with, yeah, but look at 73 million and numbers and so forth. Is there a better use of story we can make here? Because I always think story, what I like about stories is they have an integrity to them. They're not just pushing on the feeling buttons um, with people of testimony um, do we need to get a bit better at learning the kind of stories that help push the dial on this? Because as you as you know, human psychology, we respond much better yeah. to the story of somebody. And I know this in my own family. I told on the previous episode, where we, by being careful to anonymize an episode we did on abortion, I had a, a you know close relative and his wife almost got as far as having an abortion. They had two children. They found themselves pregnant for the third time. They're not Christians. Um, they sort of become convinced by others and stuff that, you know, they hadn't got the space, they hadn't got the money for another child. So they literally got as far as being in the appointment room to have the procedure. And then suddenly one of them looked at the other one and went, what the hell are we doing here? We know we can make some changes. We we don't need to go through this. And they and they described they ran almost out of that, of that clinic. And now I have a, you know, we have a third um, I won't say whether it's nephew, niece, cousin. Yeah, well, that, no, but but what struck me is the yeah. person concerned is a, is a rational, caring individual. Yeah. But he he and his wife had allowed themselves to be greased on that path mm. towards. But that was one of the transforming moments for me. I was always pro-life, but I think that woke me up to, yeah. we need to talk more about this because yeah. I think yeah, the yeah, way that pe- good people get suckered into, into this. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, anyway, story, I think, is a, is a piece that we need to figure out slightly better sometimes. Yeah, well, I, I think the, the, the pe- that paper by Brian Brown I mentioned earlier pulls together a lot of the learnings about, you know, just basically how the human brain works. And I, I mentioned the five techniques, you know, the five factors that you have to account for. But after emotion, the next one is story, because we the okay. story is the, the, the instrument through which we you know, move people's emotions. And the story is also, it's like a flight simulator for the mind. Mm. And we know that human beings learn by copying what they see around them. So our our society typically are following a story, but it's the wrong story, you know, because typically our stories now, if we look at the media, because because the, I would say, the dominant minority now are are pro-abortion, you know, pro-secularist, what they're able to do with stories is they're able to create the environment and put all the chess pieces together, so to speak, on the board 
and then they can tell you what the ending is. But the, the trouble is they create fake endings, which are not the endings that people, when they get through these things in real life, actually encounter. So mm. the, the story is totally different. So we, uh, it's been a bit, one of the, the things I've focused on in Spub is for us to try and create that ability uh, for making stories or telling stories. So we actually now have a new creative department yeah, and amazing. part of that now is we, we've got several dramas that we've mm. we've produced. We've actually got a feature film which we're hoping will will we're, we're just trying to get the agreement with the distributors just now on that. So that feature film will go out, but it's exactly that. It's to step three people through. This is what it's like to walk in the mm. steps of a, a of a, a yes. girl in a pregnant, yes. you know, in a crisis pregnancy situation. This is what it's like to be. A member of her extended family. Here's the possible pathways you could walk down, and here are the ones that lead to happiness. Here are the ones yeah. that lead to human prospering. That, that these are the sorts of stories we need to tell, and and there's a lot more to that. I mean, that 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 I would I would recommend that one with the the, the Brian Brown paper. I think it's called You've Been Framed, but he just talks yeah. about the, the the importance of also recognizing how little people use their the reason and or, or the way in which we use a reason typically we actually it's an act of the will our emotions yeah, guide yeah. us in a particular way and we use our will to choose a position then we use a reason to justify that choice absolutely rather than the other I mean, it's a fact of yeah it reminds me we've talked on um we've talked on the podcasts before uh, one of a, a writer who is you know i quite enjoy reading i know he's known to aaron as well so jonathan height a psychologist. I mean, he's got in one of his uh, his book, The Righteous Mind, goes into some of this, and he has the analogy he uh, uses, John, that I quite like. He talks about um, elephant the, the elephant and the rider. So, as human beings, yeah, exactly. So we, yeah, we use that in some talks. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? That, yes. Yeah. So, folks aren't familiar with that. Listening to that, you know, the idea is that we like to think like there we, you know, there's the rider sitting on top of the elephant, and the rider likes to think he's in control. <laughs> And he's got some control, but quite frankly, the darn elephant's going to go wherever it wants. And the same with us and our decisions. We like to think that it's our conscious, rational, detached mind, but actually our emotions and our feelings, our prejudices, all those kind of things, all those more sort of um, touchy-feely things, mm. they drive us far more than we think. And then we'll offer and invent the reasons afterwards. Mm. But he's, very po he's also positive because also two things we can be aware of. The writer can exert an influence and um, particularly the more you understand how elephants work. And then secondly, the other thing is elephants are drawn towards other friendly elephants. Yeah. So if you want to be winning somebody, don't just appeal to the rider, appeal to the elephant. Um, yeah. And that's and again, he talks about the power of story and emotion yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and those things. So again, that's not to toss reason out. But I think one thing I'm very conscious of as, as Christians, be as Protestants or Catholics, you know, we have this sort of shared tradition that truth matters to us, yeah. and it does, but then we sometimes make the mistake of thinking for everyone else in the world, it's purely about truth. If we just advance the propositions, yeah. then we yeah. can we can shift the needle. I, mean, I have to say, though, because sometimes you get this in postmodern theology, you get this kind of thing where people overemphasize story and they pretend it's not about truth. Because when you, what you just say, it's not actually that you're choosing story over truth. The story is true. Yes. So you, you, when yes. you emphasize, you're just really speaking of another medium in which to express the truth, because the, the story does have opposition, there are propositions in it, Correct. and the emotions that you're even appealing to are because someone recognizes the truth with an exclamation mark and an underlining and an italics or something. It's more like I want to emphasize how important the truth is, and I want to get that to you in, in some other way. So it's interesting that um, I love the fact that Spark's gone in the direction of of thinking about the creative arts as as another 
kind of string to their bow. And I think you, you kind of probably minimized the more academic side uh, of funding research in order to look at, you know, uh, these kind of other other ways of and and increasing a social media reach and things like that. Because I often think of the the pro life movement needs an Uncle Tom's cabin that the novel Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote, mm. which which Abraham Lincoln said basically is the reason that caused the Civil War when he met her. He said, "You're you you <laughs> you're the your book is why we're having a civil because people had had so resonated with that first you know really close account, but." with slaves and what it's like to be a slave and to be in that situation. But we can't, We though, though John, you mentioned earlier, it's emphasizing how hard this is for the mother or would be mother. We don't, we can't um, like, we can't actually empathize with a, a baby in a womb um, in terms of in the same way. So we need somehow to connect with it, which is easier to do because we can recognize, oh, imagine if I was a slave or imagine if a woman may say, imagine if I was going to be a mother like that. That's one level, but the actual baby in the womb is the is the critical, horrendous thing. That's the murder that's happening on such a, a, a an epic scale. And it's like, how do we connect people yes. with that? Because they've got their own story, like secularism and feminism. They've got their story, which is, don't talk to me about all of your murder stuff. It's nothing to do with that. It's a fetus. It's a zygote. It's a parasite. It's not a human being. Um, and it's me who's being attacked. You're, it's patriarchy that's attacking me. So that's their story, and that's been very successful as a story. So we actually mm. need to attack all sorts of stories, don't we? In, in response, we do. By the way, the other you, you make a, you make a good point about one of the, one of the challenges is that um, the other challenge I think I see particularly in British culture, and I don't know if you've got any observations on this, uh, John, or also you know, of course, Aaron as a follower of culture. We have this, this very strange relationship with the wider world in British culture that we have this very saccharine view of things. So we have a very saccharine view of nature. You know, we think it's all cuddly and cute and wonderful. A good example would be re- rewilding in the green movement. We just rewild everything, be wonderful. <laughs> Actually, rewilding just means brambles. Uh, or it's my daughter, not, not doing stuff, or yeah. yes, yeah, so my, my daughter rewilds her bedroom regularly. Um, <laughs> just tends to mean chaos. Um, but then you see the animal rights movement is interesting because you put a picture of a fluffy kitten on a leaflet, people will send you money. You put a picture of a scan of a baby. It doesn't look cute. And we have this, there's a, I, I'm not being flippant. There's an issue with cuteness in British culture. If something looks cute and nice and lovely, mm. Brits will often go, oh, isn't that wonderful? Mm. And I'm, I've, I've had overseas friends say that, you know, the British relationship to animals is bizarre, the way yeah. we look at the animal world. Mm. And I think this is, this is not totally unrelated that the, there isn't that kind of cute, that awe factor. Um, and again, again, the, our friends in the LGBT community, you know, you put the lovely gay couple up there, you're supposed to go, oh, oh, isn't, aren't, they, aren't, aren't they lovely? Um, yeah. And I can't fully figure out where this comes from in our culture. And obviously I'm part of the same thing. Mm. Um, but it's another challenge, mm. I think. Well, um, I have a friend, Peter Kearney, I used to work with. The, the oh, I know, I know, I know Peter. Oh, you know Peter. Yeah. Well, Peter, Peter used to always say... That- our, our relationship with animals has been massively distorted because of Walt Disney and all those Disney films. Yeah. That was and Beatrix Potter as well, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I suppose that that the portrayal of animals and they are cute mm. and fluffy. So, so there is that. I think that there is there's identifying that. Uh, uh, so a couple of approaches we are trying to take with that. One is, I think we're developing just now is called the Culture Academy, and what we're trying to do is is train people who will, the, the creative sort of the, the, the writers and you know, filmmakers and so on who can think of those ideas. How, mm. how do we get people to empathise once again with the unborn? So there is that. Mm. However, the, another part, another way we are doing, a, a way we do a lot of our targeting is we think, okay, well, what's the end point? And then what are the sort of um, battlefronts for that end point? And now if we, if we look at mm. um, the unborn baby, for example, 
we can start to break it down and think, well, okay, well, what are the what are the factors around, say, motherhood, and all the obstacles that are put in the way to motherhood, or, or all the, the mm-hmm. things that are said in our culture about, you know, basically how rubbish it is to give up your your freedom and your career and mm-hmm. you know your money, you know, to to have a child, to look after that child, to you know, burden yourself, you know. So the, there are things around that, and what mm-hmm. what are what could be the incentives, you know? So, what are the stories we tell about the reality of the joy of of motherhood, the satisfaction of it? So, I, I had a, a chat with someone recently, and she was saying about she was in maternity leave, and she said, uh, "Oh, but I, I don't use my brain." And, and I thought that's that's a trained response. You've been trained to think that. I mean, because mm-hmm. you know, m- my wife was off for, for for most of the time bringing up seven kids. She had to use her brain quite a lot, you know, to mm. the creativity of the, the entertain <laughs> seven kids and organise them to get yeah. things done. And yeah. she actually wrote a book while she was, you know, on maternity leave as huh. well. You know, so you can use your brain a lot, but there's there's this thing in our culture that actually, do you know what? Being a mother is quite a waste of your talent rather than seeing it as an opportunity mm. to think, wow, a great mother has a massive mm. influence in the shaping of the next generation. Mm. That used to be something that was... You know, in a not just a Christian, but wider cult- yeah. cultures recognise that you know yeah. the parents are creating the next generation, yeah. and and it's a huge job, and it's it's something that takes a lot of brains, not no brains. Mm. So so there are battlefronts. So I, so I think I mean I am hoping that us investing in this this sort of work and others doing. It, I mean we we're, we're a drop in the ocean compared to. To Hollywood, but if if we can if we can be an example to others to do this sort of thing, I'm hoping there's a genius out there who thinks of the story to create that empathy with the unborn child. How do you do it? I mean, there was yeah. a, there was a John Travolta films. Look who's talking. I don't yeah, know if you can yeah. remember though. Is you know, yeah, yeah. A, That's you know great. Play. so yeah. so there are there there are sort of storylines that people could develop, but there must be yeah. other ways of looking at it that we could use just to get people to think differently because the way we're thinking just now is literally leading uh, our society to oblivion. I mean, if you, even if you look on the demographic issue alone, how are we going to sustain the, the tax base of the future, the NHS of, of, of the future, mm. you know, the hands to do, to do work of the future? If people are, since 1973, I think, we've been below replacement level in this country. Yeah. And there's only so much we can do, you know, rob the brains of the third world to, to fill the gap for a while, you know. But what are we going to do as, you know, John Paul II used to, in the Catholic Church, talked about a culture of death. But it is a culture that seems to see death as a good thing and yeah. actually wants to choose death. Yeah. And, and and you can see some of this in the, mm. the even in the environmental movement that human beings are actually a blight on the face of the earth and actually we deserve to be gone and all of this having to flagellate ourselves for being human, mm-hmm. being, being white, for being human, yeah. for, for, for breathing, for you know <laughs> occupying space, you yeah. know for moving into the territory of animals, you know, all mm-hmm. these sorts mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. We're being told that these are all negatives and, and I think somebody needs to come and tell the story. What are all the good things that human beings have done? How have they yeah. cultivated the world and, and made it a good place and allowed human yeah. beings to flourish? As as made in God's image, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I, I would love to close out by talking a bit, a bit more about the church, but mm. I just wanted to quickly 
ask you this question. I'd, I'd also like to hear Andy's opinion on this, actually. Um, but John, it's always first. good to hear that you would like to hear my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I don't normally, no. but you know, just just while I've got you here, Andy, you Thanks know, while, yeah, get wind ways, um, like fish slice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we will get on to the church thing, but I just wanted to. You mentioned culture of death. We've talked a bit about mm. steps to be taken in legislation and things like that. One of the big debates that I think lots of some pro-life people don't haven't thought through in this country as much as, as some in the US have is the need to prosecute. As I said earlier, would you would you foresee or like there to be an ideal situation where abortion was so unthinkable that it would be like paedophilia is, is currently still unthinkable? Now there are, we could talk about that may be changing in terms of sexual orientation, that Overton window shifting ever so slightly, frighteningly. But at the moment, it's still unthinkable and and also obviously punishable. If we're going to say that Mm. abortion is murder, should we be legislating it as murder? So should somebody, of course, we could say an abortionist doctor who does it when it's against the law is going to get prosecuted, but we're less comfortable saying a, a woman who you know, we've had it in the in the media even this year with with cases that have gone beyond the twenty four week limit, which American listeners will listen to go, go gosh, I can't believe you guys have got twenty four weeks. That's insane. For them, twelve weeks is enough anyway. Mm. And we have we have people going beyond twenty four weeks, and the, and the, and the kind of media is saying, oh, they shouldn't be prosecuted. Poor them. Look at the difficulty of their situation. What's your view, John? Would you say we should be saying abortion's murder? We should be legislating it as murder, even if we take into account context, as any judge might. If it did. Well, I, I mean. Part of me is very aware of, you know, the optics of the pro-life movement coming out and, and seeing that, sure. that sort of thing. Yeah, is, of course, of course. Is, is very damning. That's going to be used against the pro-life movement. I think what sure. happened with um, the, the late-term abortion uh, that, that took place uh, that hit the news was that, that B-Pass immediately came out and, and all their friends and, and Parliament saying, oh, this, this proves we have to decriminalise, we have to allow abortion. Right up mm. to birth, we can have no mm. restriction mm. on it whatsoever, no punishment in law. Actually, there was a backlash in society. So I think laws are created to reflect what's acceptable in mm. a society. And I think what we've got to do is is show the path towards justice. And, and I think what judges can do in a court is they can weigh up the, the mitigating factors, if there yeah, are any, yeah. and decide what is yeah. the appropriate uh, decision mm. in this case. But the thing is, laws are, are there to defend the, the innocent, you know, to, to, to defend those who could be targeted by people doing wrong. And if, if in a society we get to a position where we recognise the harm of abortion, and it's not just for the baby, it's the harm it does to women. I mean, we, we mm. publish a lot, you know, very well-researched uh, evidence to show the damage that abortion does to women and how many women wish they hadn't had an abortion how many women yeah. mm. feel that they had an abortion because someone else chose it not them so i think what we have to do is say that yeah this is this is wrong and in a society we have to have laws and then and with laws you have to have a way that they're enforced and we have our politicians and our judges to find humane ways of enforcing those laws so that it mm. protects the victim uh, the, 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 primarily the, the baby that's his but also women yeah. from being drawn in an argument we talk about slavery I, I cannot offer myself as a slave because it actually then pulls other people into a slave trade and mm. similarly if we just say mm. well okay well some people have abortion we'll just shrug our shoulders it's the law but we'll just ignore it well we, we can't do that because it impacts on others it impacts mm. on the, the whole trade of abortion mm. so of so a, our aim is a, a world where it is unthinkable 
I think that's not necessarily achieving that through the law, but then law follows culture. I think so. The yeah. culture is that there's always a better choice than abortion. I, I genuinely believe that. And whatever circumstances or pressures a woman's in, it, you know, it is transient. And they get to a stage that actually, you know what? A human being is actually a marvellous gift and we'll find a way through the troubles. We'll put things in place to try and support you through the difficulties that you're facing just now. Yeah. So I think that's so that, that's a long cultural development. Oh, that's very helpful. That's very helpful. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you asked me, Aaron, as, as well, what yeah. I thought. And I'm probably, probably in a very similar position to, to John. I mean, I confess I'm torn kind of on this because it's a really tough one but I like the way you framed it John actually that we work through the unthinkable piece and then as, as the culture shifts then you can put the law into to back up but I'm also conscious as well that I think one of my nervousnesses about well very strong nervousness is way too light a word but about when the argument is well people are in de- desperate desperate situations and therefore you know abortion is the kind thing for them you know I look at say another not unrelated ethical issue look say euthanasia and having lived for six years in Canada, looking at now the way that euthanasia is being pushed as an option oh. onto people with mental health problems, yeah. the people with disabilities oh, yeah. have been pushed down the, the euthanasia path yeah. of going, well, you know, it's far too expensive for the state to help you out with all the equipment you need in your house. Maybe you should take the exit door and going, I am just not at all comfortable with the idea that we go, here's a horrendous moral, uh, you know, sort of outcome, but we'll offer it to you in, with, the, with the sort of smiling face of compassion. Um, but the other piece I think I thought of, over the years on this, not to not to push back at all on anything you've said, because I agree so broadly, but it's also the other issue, you know, one that my, my wife and I have been sort of tracking with and involved in on and off over the years, the whole human trafficking and prostitution issue. When we were in Canada, my wife was involved with a few organizations sort of, you know, working to help rescue people from that industry. And you look at what's gone on there with the so-called sort of Swedish or, or Scandinavian models for dealing with prostitution, where rather than go after the women who are seen as the, as the victims, in that the way they use you do go after the perpetrators and you go after the you know the johns who are who are purchasing sex and that's had huge success actually in a lot of scandinavia in bringing the sex industry under control and i have just found myself wondering i wonder in time whether there's a lesson there for for with with abortion yes we've got to shift the the the, the culture i think you're absolutely right and hence the unthinkable language is helpful but then in time of going you know, you then the next step is to really go after the industry mm. and go, now we've shifted. One other observation, by the way, there's something you said earlier that sort of struck me. You know, the whole, the whole birth rate piece, which is a whole other conversation, and the fact that we're shoring up our society here by, you know, draining the best talent from others. One of the unintended consequences, of course, here uh, is that, of course, then our population is in some ways slowly becoming more conservative because we're importing very conservative folks from other parts of the world with similar trends in Canada. And that was interesting because I mean, years ago I worked in the health service before going into ministry. And even back then in the late 1990s, noticing there was, you know, the hospital I was working in, you know, you've got a sort of few older sorts of medics grumbling about the fact that the younger medical students were much less keen on things like abortion and whatnot. And I thought, well, I'm surprised because you've got a growing number of Muslims and Hindus and others from societies where families take it much more seriously. So that's the other cultural piece that's that's changing. As immigration patterns change the makeup of the UK, it can be interesting to see because I don't think I think the mistake some of our friends on the progressive left may have made is you can just import large numbers of people from more traditional yeah. sites and they would just buy just by because they touch the magic dirt of the UK, uh, they will therefore imbibe all of their wonderful progressive values, which is why it's also important, I guess, for those who was in the pro-life campaign. So while recognizing we believe very different things to say our Muslim friends. Like this is an issue where we can stand with our Muslim friends 
and actually shout louder together as long as we recognize there are also some profound differences behind what we believe yeah i mean that that is an interesting perspective i, I remember once being at a presentation by uh, john curtis he's the the polling yes. guru yeah. now he's not on our side i'm sure on many issues but you know and the, the thing he, he he looked at how they changed and how they'd inverted the values and particularly he was looking at the lgbt issue and he was really proud of how they helped mm. to, to get to this position or, or how we'd moved in that direction he was really pleased about that and he identified that it was because we were able to get kids through the universities he saw the universities mm. as where we would create this new generation mm. of people sharing his values so i so i think it Probably you're right that they, I just assume that we control everything. You know, there's been this ideological capture throughout the, the unions, yes. the political parties, the trade unions, the newspapers, the televisions. They've all been captured. And so they have a confidence that we will actually just keep converting them. So as they come in, we will keep converting them. But he did say the question that that particular presentation he gave, his, his question at the end was, the big question is, can we maintain it? And I yeah. think the, the thing about human nature and, and why we see these things ebb and flow over history is because the truth always reasserts itself. Human beings mm -hmm. always rediscover the truth. And, you, you know, eventually we will start to see the flaws in what they're doing. That You know, the, the contradictions mm -hmm. will start to become more glaringly obvious and the damage to society will become glaringly obvious. The big question for me is... Can it become obvious in time for us to do something about it? And that's that is a genuine, real question. Have we done so much damage that we won't be able to to fix it, or the way we will continue in the future will be much more difficult than it, it needed to be? Yeah, that's really really helpful, John. And just as just as we're coming kind of towards a close, but we're really helpful to hear your thoughts on, as you say, what what we can do about this in terms of helping that truth shift. In the mindset and what what can the church do in particular because i think one thing i picked up at the spuck conference was was the challenge that sometimes pro-life organizations have like yours of getting through to local clergy and priests vicars uh preachers to speak about this issue this is something we've talked about on, on our previous episode on abortion why don't we speak about it more and you know is there any 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 message you would have for the church or for church leaders listening um, to get involved in it, considering that they're maybe they're busy, maybe they they care a lot about these other issues. They think about poverty. They're thinking about uh, all these other social issues. If they get time to even do that, they've got their congregations. But really, we do want the church to be flying this flag, don't we? And and and, and out on, on the kind of front line of this. Like, how would you kind of see your work kind of joining in with what the church is doing? How would you encourage the church to be more vocal? Well, I think they have to teach the truth. That's one thing. And, and the role of the church in civic society is enormous. So I would see them as a as a player in civic society. So they're one of the areas that, that needs to be influenced. Uh, I would encourage them to, to speak out, you know, f first of all, just because of the scale of, of the, the challenge. I mean, it, it is, and numerically speaking, it's the greatest human rights tragedy the world has ever seen. Mm. You know, so they really, for that reason, need to take a position on it. On the other side of it, I would say we need to recognise that there's a role for the for the laity to give leadership as well in society because a lot of clergy will be sitting back saying, this is a really difficult issue for me to speak on and I don't know if I've got the competence to do it. So there's a role for the laity to, to, to tell them what we've learned about the experience of women. So we, we have a counselling service for women who've had abortions. So what have we learned from that? 
and, and one of the things we've learned is those women often just wish someone had spoken about it. And and the fact that it's this this uncomfortable silence around it, that that woman feels, well, I've got to go along and keep it bottled up inside me. So I think let, letting them know, and in many other professions, there's continuing professional development. I don't think, I think we put too much pressure on our clergy and priests to just get on with it. You know, they, they get ordained and then they're thrown out and they've got to make their own way. They're not... There's not enough of them now. I think, you know, as we're seeing a dwindling in, in vocations, it's very difficult for them to have that sort of sense of numbers and sense of support. And therefore, they're, they're quite vulnerable. And, and if you speak out on a very hot issue where you've got people who are, you know, very ready to challenge you, you know, and, and it, is, it is a way that people will shut you up. You know, if, if you know, I've, I've, I have to give talks lots, and even in churches, and I'm always surprised. No, I'm not always surprised, but it happens every now and again that someone will react very, very strongly. Even in a Catholic church, you know, walk out in the church or berate you at the end of it or come over to you and you're judgmental and all the rest of it. Mm. You know, so if I, if you're a priest, it's hard to put yourself up or, or, or a minister. It's hard to put yourself up and take that and then think, well, what am I going to do if I am attacked? So I think there's a role for us to support them. How are we supporting them? What sort of continuing professional development do we give them? What sort of evidence do we present to them? You know, and one of the things we're trying to do is get people to talk to women who've had abortions. So we're trying to do that with politicians, trying to do that with clergy. So we've, we've got a, an outreach with that. So we'll speak to women who've had it so that they can actually feel comfortable. So if, I, if I'm putting my head up for it, you be punched in the nose, I'm, I'm a bit reticent. But if I'm putting my head up to think, actually, there's women out there who've had abortions who need help, and I've got the message of help, but here, mm. here it is. I think if we mm. if we can frame it or help them to see that's actually what they're yes. doing, rather than get involved yeah. in a political controversy, they're, they're going mm. to be much more likely to do it. But but not yeah. allow them to feel lonely when they're doing it. They need to feel supported, and they need to know that there's lay people. Yeah. And, and too often laity are expecting that the, the priests are going to be in fighting parliament or, or taking on the mm. politicians or taking on the academics. That's the, that's the role of the laity. But the, mm. the, the church leader is there to promote what is the teaching of the church and, and for the rest of us to then put that into effect in society. Yeah. Oh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of really helpful wisdom there, John. Actually, as you were speaking, I, rem- I was reminded of, I think, one of the things that has really helped you know, beginning to shift the conversation on, say, the trans issue or the stories of detransitioners, you know, being told far more about people who've been desperately hurt mm. by that whole movement. And I think similarly for the abortion yeah. story, the more that we can tell the story of women who have had, um, you know, abortions and regretted them, who've been sort of chewed up by the by the industry, the more that we can make a story focused. Um, but a great challenge there, I think, to, to, to all of us in the church to get to get more involved. I mean, we've talked on Part of the Gaps in other episodes that, you know, there's tendency sometimes for, for laity to kind of sit back and assume that the pastor will do it all, whether it's, uh, yeah. whether it's engaged, you know, theology, whether it's evangelism, whether it's politics. And actually, all of us are called. Uh, that's one of the beautiful things about being, being a Christian, that all of us are called then to, you know, what does it mean to live out that faith we have in, in Christ, whether it's in terms of loving our immediate neighbor or loving our wider neighbor. So, um. John, I'm conscious we have hit an hour. We could, there are so many more things uh, we could talk about, but it's been mm. an absolute privilege mm. uh, to have you on Pod of the Gaps. Thank you for taking the time. One very final, very quick question. If people want to find out more about the work of, uh, of Spark of SPUC, where should they go? How do they how do they find yeah, you? Yeah, please, please, uh, if you do a search for Spark, you will find us, but it's spuc.org.uk. So you can find us 
online for that. Yeah, I'd be delighted to, to hear from any of your listeners and I'd be delighted to come back anytime. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you, Aaron, recently and with both of you today. So uh, God bless you in the, the efforts we'll, that you're doing. Thanks, John. We'll, we'll, we'll get Kaylee going next time. We'll have we? to get Kaylee going and uh, we will... Uh, yeah, let's have a sing song. <laughs> Sing song, and we'll put a link to. Uh, we'll also put a link to uh, SPUC uh, yeah. into the show notes. So, listeners who didn't catch the, the URL there, if you're driving or whatever, where you're catching part of the gaps, yeah. as usual, check out the show Absolutely. notes. Some of the references that John put there, we'll chase down as well and try and get those into the show mm-hmm. notes because there's so many good, great things that we covered. Mm-hmm. And uh, once again, thank you for listening. It's part of the gaps. We're back in a few weeks' time with another episode, maybe another guest. Who knows? We've got some great plans for the show. Thanks for listening, and it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Thank you.